Hi, welcome to Innovative Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute and a fellow with the International Leadership Association. This podcast is part of a series hosted in conjunction with the International Leadership Association as part of their 2020 Global Leadership Conference, focusing on leading at the edge. At the Innovative Leadership Institute, we help leaders elevate the quality of their leadership and co-create the thriving future they seek. We assist them in navigating the disruptive trends they're facing, developing strategies to elevate themselves and their organizations to continually meet the challenges they face. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the content. With me on the show today are Peter Wang and Richard Fernandez. Peter's the CEO of Healthy Minds Innovations. Peter's focuses on helping organizations adopt science-based practices that support mental well-being and performance. He implemented systems of well-being and performance as a leader in large corporations and is invited to share these experiences with corporations, governmental organizations, NGOs, and conferences around the world. Rich Fernandez, PhD, is CEO of Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, which was developed at Google as a mindfulness and emotional intelligence platform for leaders and was later spun off as an independent nonprofit educational institute. Rich was formerly head of executive education at Google and prior to that worked for many years at J.P. Morgan Chase and eBay. Currently, his organization works with governments, businesses, universities, and community organizations to offer practical and accessible mindfulness and emotional development learning solutions. So Peter and Rich join me today to discuss mindfulness and employee well-being. It's essential for today's workplaces to provide well-being support for employees just as much as traditional professional education. Supporting the long-term mental health of your team can provide the difference between an engaged, collaborative, and productive organization on one riddled with toxicity and turnover. And I would say in the COVID time, we're seeing death rates, according to some numbers, as high from mental health issues and addiction as we are COVID. Now we'll see how the numbers unfold. And this is tragic. So the work that both Rich and Peter are offering is absolutely foundational. So welcome both of you. And is there anything you want to tell us about yourself before we jump into some of the numbers? Well, thank you. This is Rich here. And um, I'm very happy to be here talking about this topic. Like I said, like you said, actually, Maureen, uh, this is more essential now than ever. We're seeing rates of mental distress really elevated by multiples in the workplace. And so having the tools to create better well-being solutions, sustainable high-performance solutions were always important, but they're more so now. Uh, And I'm really happy to be here with my friend and colleague Peter as well, because I think both our organizations are really squarely focused on bringing these solutions into specifically organizational settings to make the tools available for the employee bases, like I said, in these practical and accessible ways. So I'm just happy to dive in and kind of share with the audience these approaches. Maureen, I I was going to say that, again, I'm also very happy to be here with Rich and and with you to talk about this. Healthy Minds Innovations, we are associated with the Neuroscience Research Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison Center for Healthy Minds. 
which was involved with a lot of the pioneering research to look at kind of how contemplative practice influences the mind. And we had already been looking at this prior to the pandemic as kind of the concern over mental health as a public health issue. And we were already hugely concerned. And then it's been really kind of terrifying to see the impact of the pandemic as well. So uh, yeah, we absolutely see this as kind of an urgent need for us to be addressing. Before we jump into all the COVID stuff then, because I'm so curious about contemplative practice and actually have been a research subject, I'm not sure I was a very good one, looking at how that impacted different parts of our physiology. So can you tell our listeners, one, what's a contemplative practice? And two, what's the neuroscience benefit that you're seeing in the research? Just the first discussion around contemplative practice, what we're talking about is practice where you're purposely trying to eliminate other distractions and focus on different aspects of kind of cultivating your mental state. So it could be concentration, could be trying to cultivate, uh, for example, compassion. So there's different things that you're basically trying to train yourself. And one of the things that's really interesting about this is that what we've seen is that the mind is, is plastic, actually. It can be influenced mm-hmm. by what we do. I remember, you know, when I was a kid hearing that the mind basically was fixed. It, you know, you went through adolescence, it, adolescence, it was fixed, and then slowly degraded the rest of your life, right? And I I, that's I, not true. <laughs> yeah, and I always found that very depressing. Fortunately, it has been yeah. discovered that it is not that case, and actually it changes. And what we do actually changes changes the physical structure of our mind. And so the contemplative practices are very useful in changing a number of aspects of the mind that are very beneficial for things like resilience and things like dealing with challenging interactions or challenging emotions. And Rich, do you want to build on that? Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with Peter. And I would add to that, that it, it is a way for us to train our attention and awareness of both our mental and emotional states. Okay, so say more about what that means. Yeah, so like our mental states, like the quality of our attention, as Peter was saying, and Mm -hmm. as well as the clarity, mental balance, things like this. And then that really does impact our emotional states, our capacity to navigate stressful situations, conflict, or some of the very things we're experiencing in the world right now. And so what research has increasingly been showing is that you can actually change these capacities. We all possess the capacities and you can Mm -hmm. grow your skill and capacity to bring in these qualities of resilience, of like emotional awareness and emotional management of the experiences that you're having. And these were essential skills because as some of you in who are listening may know we had our origin, this org- our organization had our origin in Google when a lot of the Google engineers realized they had to work with other humans and <laughs> they were also having to necessarily navigate a very demanding, complex and pretty stressful environment that was operating at high velocity mm-hmm. and with like huge expectations and deliverables. And so that had a real impact on both their mental and emotional health. And so a lot of the solutions that we architected really were created to address those things. Mm -hmm. And over the 10 years that we've been offering this platform, we've been really seeing some 
positive changes in a lot of the organizations with which we work. So there's some really, and I know Peter's organization is this way too, you know, we take a really kind of measurement oriented approach to the outcomes Mm -hmm. of the tools that we're offering. Well, I know our resilience framework looks at how do I manage my thinking because my thinking impacts my emotions and my emotions impact my thinking. So the interconnection I love the idea that you measure it because it takes it out of the realm of the woo-woo or the new age or whatever and brings it into the realm of science so that it people who resist unconventional tactics have access to it. In our pre-conversation, we were talking about the Gallup research on burnout. Do you want to share that with our listeners and also the data about people already practicing meditation. One of the things that we have, again, even prior to the pandemic, when we were looking at, uh, we found that record rates of burnout and stress and and the Gallup survey showed that only 15% of employees are fully engaged at work, which is a pretty shocking and concerning number, I think from any perspective, right? As you know, if for yourself, as um, you know, any employee, to feel that you know not fully engaged, you're not fully utilizing your own potential, is also lack of engagement and distraction has been proven to be a less kind of positive state of mind. And then from an employer perspective, clearly it's an issue as well to from a, you know ability to to get things done. And I think one of the things that we also saw, we've conducted a survey to understand kind of what are the interests in this kind of this kind of work at this point. Uh, I think we've obviously seen a lot of more, a lot more coverage in the mainstream media, but we found that 71% of people have expressed some type of interest in uh, meditation and mindfulness practices. So there's a lot of interest right now trying to explore ways to improve without, you know, resorting to anything that has downsides. I think Maureen, just beforehand, you were talking about <laughs> the, the you know big searches on French fries and uh, alcohol. <laughs> yeah, during the election, that that people are not all meditating, or, <laughs> or they are augmenting their meditation with alcohol and French fries. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I it's so interesting because I think the other interesting Gallup data that I've seen shows that only about eight percent of people report that they have well-being as a result of the work they do. Mm, unfortunate. Yes, exactly. I mean, look, they call it work for a reason, right? Or they call it a job for a reason. And sometimes it's not where you necessarily look to for your source of well-being, but it should be the case that it is supportive of well-being, it seems to me, because if it's not, then you get the opposite, which is exactly what we were just talking about, the 15% Mm. engagement, right? Which is really a, a horrible statistic. You know, we did a, we just, just in the past couple of months, we've done a state of emotional intelligence in the workplace survey, where we surveyed about a thousand people across 15 different countries. What was interesting to see was in the top five hit list of things that people report needing or wanting in their workplace were tools to navigate uncertainty. Of course. Because levels yeah. of yeah. stress were higher as a result of uncertainty. And so I think there's now a preponderance of evidence and it's just, you have to look no further than your own experience, but there's a lot of data suggesting that, that well-being is sort of ports to a top priority for people 
and organizations now more than ever. And then I think perhaps some of the downstream impacts of not addressing that are things like engagement. Well, and what I love, and and you're going to continue to talk about this, is we're now studying the outcome of well-being, and we we understand what are some of the inputs that result in more well-being. So I can take action, like having job with purpose, doing meditation, and I'm sure we'll go into a lot of others. One of the other things you said was 71% of people are meditating now or are open to meditation. Yes. Which having taught grad students for now a couple of decades, early on I had students meditating and they were concerned that I was promoting some weird religious practice. And then, you know, over time, it now seems more mainstream that I'm in fact not promoting any specific denomination, but rather things like breathing practices. And so it sounds like just the idea of contemplative practice or meditation is becoming more mainstream. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you know, it was funny because Peter, you'll, so Peter and I both worked at Google together. We were actually there at the same time. I remember attending some of these different contemplative trainings and also each of us offered and taught those at Google at different times and ways. But Peter, you may remember this, like back at Google, we, initially we, we talked about this as a form of, again, engineering culture. We called it neural self-hacking. Yeah. Yeah, I do remember that. <laughs> you remember that, right? That's yeah, what we used to call meditation and mindfulness because back then it wasn't a thing, right? And so, or refactoring the brain. Code refactoring is a way of optimizing code so that you just kind of get parsimony and the least variables to achieve the outcome. Anyway, we called it refactoring the brain for optimal performance, things like this, right? So it, the, the language used to be, and perhaps still is really important. It has to kind of match your organization culture. The offering has to align with organizational priorities. But I think to the data that we were just talking about, you know, I think there is more acceptance of these practices as a form of, it, and we call them practices because I think that's really what they are. But in the end, what we're talking about is skill development mental and emotional well-being skills. And this was what we were talking about earlier was this fact of neuroplasticity. The research on neuroplasticity has shown us that you can cha- you could train these aspects of mental and emotional functioning and have a positive impact on them, help people acquire those skills demonstrably, measurably. And we can't Sorry, lead without them. So I was just going to share just a funny story also, because I remember this time from Google that you were talking about, you know, or Google was a very early adopter. We had yep. meditation rooms and you were supposed to take your shoes off. And I used to hide my shoes because I didn't want anyone to see that I was in the meditation room in case they recognized my shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and I was working with a client in the Bay Area that did not go the way of Google and their meditation room ended up being a storage closet. <laughs> Nobody used it. <laughs> right, right, right. So at, at least you were using it even though you hid your shoes. <laughs> so let's talk about, because that leads us into the question of culture. Pre-COVID-19, what were some of the challenges for employees and organizational cultures to bring mindfulness and well-being into organizations and get adopted? I think for, from, from my perspective, it's all of the sort of traditional, like, how do I improve the theory of the case? How do I make the business case? How do I ensure that this is not perceived of as a kind of a woo-woo thing? 
And also perhaps the last one is that this is a nice to have, but not a need to have. And so how do I convince people to allocate budget for it? Well, and when we're also busy, like you said, at Google, it's an intense environment. How do yeah. you allocate time for it? Right. That I take 10 minutes or a half hour or whatever I choose to go do that rather than working on code factoring. That was a, often, I think, what was also seen is that the employers who were interested were not concerned about the budget as much as the time. They wouldn't want to kind of approve the time for people to spend time training or spend time learning. I, I used to get, actually, I used to get in trouble when I was teaching people would, I used to lead a big global organization and people would say, I couldn't reach you for, you know, a couple hours. And, and I said, well, I was teaching a mindfulness class. I couldn't really be on my <laughs> cell phone the whole time. But I think that's one of the things that was really always quite painful in the past that employees would express a lot of interest and say, hey, you know, we really need tools and we really need a lot more. And I think there was quite a bit of resistance often from different areas within organizations. Now, fast forward from when you were at Google, we've had the COVID-19 pandemic. People are facing even significantly more uncertainty and additional challenges like kids not going to school every day. How do I provide care for my children and education and get my job done? And all the myriad of other, I'm not sure I'm safe walking out of my house. Now, what is the need and what kind of opportunities and challenges are you facing? We just completed this state of the emotional intelligence survey in organizations. And I can tell you the top five things that we're seeing. So number one, I shared, you know, people are just trying to figure out how to deal with uncertainty. Number two for us was productivity, how to stay productive exactly perhaps when you have this kind of more challenging circumstance, work life has blurred. Um, mm -hmm. Three is leadership. How do you lead in this context? Followed by stress and burnout, navigating stress and burnout at higher levels. And then finally, collaboration. How do you collaborate effectively in this environment? And again, this data comes from about a thousand different respondents across 59 countries. These are top priorities, I think, now for organizations. And also coming out of that survey, we know that 85% of the respondents agreed that emotional intelligence skills are essential. Draw the connection for people who don't do the research that you do between these challenges and the use of contemplative practices, meditation, and any others that you are also potentially using. So one of the things that I think we've seen is that as both Rich and I had experienced before, there was kind of a lot of kind of concern and, uh, you know, challenges with getting, I think, approvals and support. And now I'm seeing a lot more kind of understanding that uh, contemplative practices can really help. I know we've been get, getting contacted a lot at Healthy Minds Innovations because of the fact that we work on kind of a broad set of mental well-being skills. And folks are now realizing, oh yeah, this would be really, really helpful right at this moment. And so what we're seeing is instead of the longer discussions, I think we're seeing much shorter discussions of saying, okay, let me just understand what aspects of mental well-being you work on. And once they understand it's a fairly broad set of mental well-being skills, they say, well, I really need this. And now what we're getting instead is they're rushing us. Hey, could you <laughs> get this? And we want to launch right away a program and we want to get things. And 
yeah, we actually end up having to try to like space things out. And so it becomes a, and so I, in one sense, I feel like that's a really positive response that these practices can help. And that this is a really important set of tools to provide to employees. And the other thing that I, you know, I do hope is that it's a long-term recognition and not just an immediate response to, you know, the spike in concern. Yeah. And I think the link to just further elaborate as well as you asked Maureen, you know, what is the link between contemplative or mindfulness practices and well-being? From our perspective, mindfulness practices operationalize emotional intelligence and well-being because these practices that we're talking about are specific and very concrete ways to train mental capacities, to train kind of emotional management. They're in some ways, they're emotional management strategies as well, Uh, but they take the form of experiential practice. So that may be a little unintuitive for some people Mm -hmm. uh, that, oh, I have to do an exercise to build my emotional intelligence, for example, or to build my capacity for focus, to lower distractibility, to improve conflict management. Those things are not necessarily intuitive for people, but again, through specific and very concrete sets of exercises, practices, tools, we do see measurable improvement on those. And like I said, we've measured them in our client systems. Uh, Large companies, companies like SAP, of course, Google, but also other sectors. We just worked with the Los Angeles Criminal Justice Agency, a number of agencies there, and we're seeing some positive benefits to these practices for the very, very stressful and intensive work that they do uh, in their agencies. So they really have concrete benefits. You know, it, it seems like none of us question the idea of exercise for our bodies, right? I wouldn't go a day without, I'm a militant step person. So I measure my steps, I work out in the morning, I work out in the evening, short workouts, but I, I work out a lot because it helps me manage stress. It keeps my body healthy. So of course I would do a quote workout for my brain because I want it to be as agile or limber as my physical body is because it doesn't do me any good to be physically healthy and mentally flabby. <laughs> yes, no, I, it's actually kind of a very perfect analogy, basically, in terms of, you know, physical exercise for your body and contemplative practices to exercise the brain. We do view this as a very fundamental, basically, set of skills that can be developed. Uh, One of the things that we like to talk about is the fact that mental well-being is a skill. It is not something that inadvertently happens. Happens. (laughs) You actually, yeah, you can train it. And there's a yeah. systematic way of training it, and that allows you to constantly improve and actually shift kind of your, your baseline from where you're at. And so, yeah, it, it is also something that we absolutely uh, joke around about. We would love to see it as kind of ubiquitous as brushing your teeth. And that we see that as overall, I think that's our founder, Dr. Richard Davidson. That's one of his favorite uh, analogies to use as kind of the adoption of the brushing of teeth. So on that note, I encourage our listeners to think about what practices do you have that are as ubiquitous as brushing your teeth and do any of them support your mental and emotional well-being? We are at the International Leadership Association conference virtually. I am with Peter Wang and Richard Fernandez, and we are talking about mindfulness and the benefits in the workplace. 
Now let's circle back to our workplace environments. How are these practices integrated into the workplace? You talked a little bit about, Peter, that at Google, you had a meditation room and you hid your shoes. I also wonder if people would steal shoes, but that's a separate topic. How are workplaces promoting mental well-being, especially beyond creating a physical space? What are they doing? We're seeing kind of like a multi sort of channel approach to adopting these practices. So we work with some organizations where they offer broad based training supported by leadership. So I should say that like it actually begins, I think, with leaders who understand these practices, adopt them for themselves because they see benefit and then can become champions and sponsor the work within their teams. So from there, then offering it easily and broadly to employees, like I mentioned before, our biggest client perhaps right now is a a software company called SAP, multinational company. About 10% of their workforce have been offered and gone through some version of mindfulness training that we offer them and and they've measured the impacts of that. So it kind of creates then this, what we call a community of practice and engagement where it becomes a little bit the common currency to be able to do things like take breaks, have pods where you can do check-ins, where you can do very brief micro practices. That's another thing we try to do in organizations that they don't have to be long form, you know, go retreat up on a mountaintop, but things you can do in the flow of your everyday work and life, what we call integrated practices and micro practices. And we create ways for employees to practice together. And then importantly, we also try to embed it within the culture by offering things like very rigorous train the trainer. So that one of our board members is a neuroscientist named Amishi Jha. And her research is interesting because she teaches these practices in the military, her, her and her lab do. And what they found was actually the most effective people who deliver these tools to the organization are not necessarily outside trainers, but actually people who've been trained from within the ranks to deliver them to their peers. And so we take that same approach, a kind of a peer learning approach so that you can build a kind of momentum within the organization and a community of practice and engagement. And it sounds like then leaders model it, leaders teach it, leaders do it, colleagues do it. Can you give a couple of concrete examples of practices and micro practices. And this is getting to the idea that I don't have to put on some funny shoes, carry a pillow around and go sit in a dark (laughs) room. I can probably do this at my desk or I've gone and shut a stall door in a lady's room just to have some quiet. I can put on my headphones. There are lots of ways to do this that are practical in a workplace. I'd be happy to share a um, you know, small practice that's easy to integrate into a, a meeting is a minute of silence ahead of the start of a meeting. And so what that does is allowing everyone to kind of settle in, reset from the previous meeting. And often when we do this, we may also include a prompt and ask people to consider something. For example, mm-hmm. considering what their intention is for the meeting. And something very small like that is really surprising the amount of impact it can have on the tone of the meeting, just for a, you know, a small little brief moment. Continuing on kind of what Rich was talking about, I feel like one of the things that I really like to see in terms of workplaces and integration in workplaces, I really like to see the, you know, like a formal introduction practice. 
uh, or formal introduction to these types of contemplative practices. So, you know, a formal program from like, you know, Rich's organization or from my organization, what we would do is teach the concepts, teach very rigorously how to do these practices, allow for a question and answer, and then encourage people once they understand the, the concepts to then start to integrate these practices into the, the workplace. And again, you know, you can do very small mm-hmm. things. You can also establish different types of norms for, for example, when conflict arises and have ways of calling out, let's enter into, you know, a norm around the best way to resolve a a conflict. And so there's a lot of things that can be done in particular, once you Mm -hmm. establish the kind of general understanding across Mm -hmm. an organization. You know, one of the things I've done with people in conflict is have them reflect on three things you, you appreciate about the other person. Because it's so easy when I'm frustrated my brain shuts down and all I can think is bad rather than this person works here for a reason or I interact with them for a reason and what might I like about them? Rich, you're smiling. What are you thinking? (laughs) Right. I I think that's a good practice. I would call that probably an advanced practice because when you're really pissed at the person who's sitting across from you or they're really pissed at you, (laughs) it can Mm -hmm. be sometimes hard to get there. Um, (laughs) It's a good place to go and it's a good practice. Maybe the introductory practice would be another micro practice that I might call the three breath micro practice. So taking three breaths in a rather specific way. So we would ask people to sort of first, you know, notice their breath. So that has the quality of sort of pivoting what we call the spotlight of your attention away from the kind of charged thing that you're completely consumed (laughs) by. So you notice your breath, a second breath you take, you relax the body as you exhale. That's kind of bringing the parasympathetic nervous system to bear, which is the kind of calming part of our nervous system. And then the third one is similar to what Peter was saying in the minute arrival practice is the third breath, you ask yourself, what's important now? And Peter's going to laugh at this because he'll remember this moment. I was once in a tense negotiation and we, we've been colleagues, Peter and I, and um, Peter kind of happened by, happened to pass by right at that moment. And he, he sort of saw this tense moment, but he saw me kind of being sort of relaxed because I was asking myself, I was doing the very practice I'm talking mm-hmm. about. And I was asking myself, what's important here now? I was on my third breath, Peter, I think. And <laughs> I was asking Am I trying to just be right here or am I, am I going to ask what's important and how do I get to the productive constructive Mm -hmm. solution? And I opted for that fortunately, because I had the two breaths before to kind of calm myself down. (laughs) And I think we got to a constructive solution. So it was a good outcome. I remember that. It was a good outcome. Yeah, you were there. Yeah, I remember (laughs) Peter and I have been colleagues and friends for a long time. So we've had different scenarios together, but three breaths micro practice is a way to kind of calm yourself down to refocus your attention and to focus it on what is most important. So let's bring that then to the organizational side because the two of you had this common language and can support each other. If you are in a difficult meeting, would you say to your person that you're having the challenge with, let's both take three breaths and regroup about what we care about here? Or is that too much? Uh, so Peter, I'll be curious your thoughts on this, but you know, I, I would, you have to gauge it, right? Because yeah. the three breath practice, by the way, isn't 
you can do that in stealth mode. In fact, I might recommend you do it in stealth mode at first, unless you know the other person or feel comfortable with them. You really, it has to be a judgment call because they may have an allergic reaction. This new age crap again. I'm gonna roll their eyes, right? So <laughs> when I when I do it, I don't necessarily say, time out, I'm just gonna get my mindfulness on here a second and you can just <laughs> chill there because I'm gonna do this three breath sync. So, so if you see me kind of taking this, I don't do that, right? I kind of do it in stealth mode, unless I know like, you know, if it was Peter or someone else who I felt comfortable with, mm -hmm. or I could get a sense, I'd say, hey, why don't we, can we take a minute to just whatever, right? So, Regroup. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with Rich. I really think it depends on how much time you have spent discussing this ahead of time with people. And so, mm -hmm. you know, when I used to be on the board of uh, Inside Santa Cruz, a meditation center, it was a meditation center. This was an yeah. easy one, right? But, you know, our guiding teacher, whenever things got tense and things do get tense, even in a meditation center board, he would ring a bell and we'd all know we are getting too heated and we need to stop. And so if you have a, this is an example of a norm that you can establish with the group when you, you know, continue on and say everyone is bought in. But if everyone is not bought in, then, you know, you can practice these on your own. And, you know, just say, hey, I'm going to silently kind of calm myself down because I can tell I'm getting agitated uh, and then try to then, you know, support the resolution of the issue at hand from a better place from yourself individually. And I do that during interviews when I'm feeling overwhelmed by the amount of conversation with people who I think are way smarter than me is take a few breaths. And I don't say, let's take a few breaths so I can calm down. <laughs> or because I'm feeling inadequate, but certainly I do a couple of breaths just to calm my mind so that I can continue to absorb information because it seems to fill up up there pretty quickly sometimes. <laughs> most times, yeah. <laughs> most of us, most of the time, I think. So sounds like this is teachable if we practice it, right? It's yeah. not teachable and then I go home and talk about it. I actually have to do it. Yes. Yeah, I want to come back to, I love that analogy, Peter, about the toothbrush. I, I, I actually use that too, as regards ongoing practice, right? So I say, we can, we can teach you the science and mm -hmm. the technique concepts around brushing your teeth, which would be great. And then you can do it at an experiential level. But if you only do it once, you're not going to enjoy the benefits. <laughs> so very much like that we would say that these contemplative practices are things that need to become habituated. And when we say habit, you know, we don't necessarily mean they have to be these big overblown things. You know, some of the research shows that just a few minutes a day for a few days a week can start to have some of these neuroplastic benefits in your brain, changing the structure and the function of certain neural networks that are responsible mm -hmm. for the very things we're talking about, attention, awareness, emotional regulation, and so forth. So let's go to some of the science for a minute. Tell me about how this impacts my brain or tell our listeners how it will impact their brains when they start doing this. This is the sales pitch of if you do this for people who care about brains, this is pretty cool stuff. Yeah, it's kind of astounding the impact on the brain. So the the classic study is often shared was around London taxi drivers, those folks who have to memorize the, the old test. You had to memorize kind of the spatial map of London in your head and know, uh, you know, an enormous number of routes. 
And that type of memory was shown to change actually the physical structure of the part of the brain that is important for spatial awareness. And so the changes of meditation and contemplative practice also have direct changes on important parts of the brain, in particular parts of the brain that help with emotion regulation and concentration and being able to pay attention to things that are important to you. So I think one of the things that we see is really astounding is that the analogy that we were talking about, you know, the physical exercise analogy actually is more than just like a good metaphor. It's actually almost like a literal one in the sense that you're actually changing the physical structure of your brain. So, and one of the things that has been really interesting too, is to look at potential impact on aging of the brain as well. And the fact that you can actually uh, alleviate certain aspects of age-related cognitive decline. Wow. So it reduces burnout, improves sleep quality, I assume, addresses physical health. So I'm not absent from work as often. I'm, I'm going on memory. So I may not have meditated enough to remember all these things. <laughs> um, and if I'm able to maintain focus, I'm able to think better. I'm able to produce more work in a shorter amount of time because I'm not distracted and angry with people all the time. Huge benefits and correct whatever I said that's inaccurate. No, I think it's just additive because there's other things too. Like you can create, you can develop the capacities of your brain to take perspectives, to become aware of not only your own emotions, but the emotions of others, for example. So there's benefits to the mechanisms that are related in the brain to empathy, also to positive emotion, to the generation of positive emotion in your own brain and body. And so you can shift out of it, potentially negative mood state in different ways. So, you know, again, there's the field of what we call contemplative neuroscience is somewhat new. It's just a few decades old, probably three, four decades old, because as we were saying earlier, for a long time, we all thought that our brains were fixed. You come into the world yeah. with a certain number of brain cells, you leave with a certain number less, that you couldn't in fact grow them or strengthen the functionality between the different neural networks. And again, the research is showing more and more that you can in very specific ways through very specific activities and exercises. And those are exactly the ones that both our organizations, mine and Peter's, really key on when we deliver those, those tools to organizations. If I'm an organization and I'm interested in doing this, what kind of duration, what does a program look like? Uh, at least from the Healthy Minds Innovations perspective, there's multiple paths uh, maybe I'll just talk about kind of an ideal set. And this is similar to what we were talking about earlier. I think the ideal is to go through a live training for us, we call the masterclass. What that would go through is the four components of mental well-being that uh, we look at awareness, connection, insight, and purpose, teach the skills, allow people to have experience with it, allow them to have mm -hmm. opportunity to interact with a live teacher and have question and answer. What we've done is then put all of the learnings into an app. And then what that does is then allow people to then practice and get support ongoing um, and work with the app. Uh, and that's supported by regular you know, uh, monthly webinars and mm -hmm. sessions to try to allow again to people to ask questions and, and encourage their practice. And so we work in that sense. I mean, we typically set up measurements, assessments, 
to allow ongoing tracking of impact. And then because we are a research entity also, we also often set up uh, large research studies with some of the big organizations that we work with. That is what I'd call out. And just for us, it's a similar architecture. You know, we have, we're big believers in kind of synchronous learning. So live experiences, but delivered virtually as and or in person previous to COVID. And then supporting that by digital learning that's asynchronous so that people can access practices, guided practices, studies, different resources, articles, research Mm -hmm. to support their learning. And then I earlier mentioned community of practice. That's something that we really emphasize. So we offer free monthly gatherings. And so it's a very similar approach, you know, to Peter's. We tend to try to make sure that learning occurs over time and then measure it as well. So for our listeners, how would they reach both of your organizations? And I really appreciate that there's a steeping in the content before they just go pick up an app because we all stop doing stuff when it gets hard. So having the collective, the community of practice that's going to support me before they just go off and use an app and kind of fall off if they don't have the community of practice and the support and the tracking. So how would they reach you? Well, you could just find us at silly.org. So we're Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. It's a goofy name. It came out of Google, Search Inside Yourself. It's goofy. We we like to keep it light. So our acronym Mm -hmm. is S-I-Y-L-I.org, which is silly.org. And you can find everything you need there. Beautiful. And Peter? And we are Healthy Minds Innovations. If you search for Healthy Minds, we should come up first. It's also a long name, Healthy Minds Innovations. And uh, our actual website is hminnovations.org. We actually also, because of uh, the generous generosity of our donors, we do have ability for folks to access the app. Uh, we've made the content of uh, a year's worth of content freely available. And that is in the App Store and also in the Android Store. Uh, that's the Healthy Minds program. So thank you so much. And to our listeners, I highly encourage you to, if you don't have a meditation practice, to explore it, either these or others. And if you do, check out the app and take your practice to the next level. Thank you both, Rich and Peter, for sharing your evening and your wisdom with our listeners. Thank you so much, Maureen. Yes, thank you, Maureen. And great to get in a chat with both of you. Thank you for investing your precious time with us today. We're delighted to share the wisdom from the International Leadership Association 2020 Global Leadership Conference, Leading at the Edge. We encourage you to join for additional conversations. Please bookmark this podcast, subscribe, like it, share it with your friends and colleagues. Most importantly, thank you for focusing on elevating your own leadership and making an impact in the world today. 